Welcome to All Saints Community Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. We are a community of worship and formation on mission with Jesus. Our desire for you as you listen is to be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit as we read the scriptures and to be mobilized to actively bring God's kingdom to the earth. For more information on who we are, visit allsaintsokc.org or follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at ASCCOKC. So today we are looking at Acts chapter 5, 1 to 16, and you're probably already seeing there that this is the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And it is one of those things that we value as we look through the scriptures, we don't skirt around stories like this. Some of you are looking at me like, what are you going to do with this? This is a fun one. And frankly, I can't remember the last message I ever heard on Ananias and Sapphira, but this is the word of God. And there is something in it for our church right now. And so we're going to peel some of the layers back in this and see that it's a passage about God and about God's ways and about God's model for the church for 2,000 years. It's been the model. So we're going to rediscover that in this story today. So Lord, we welcome you and we thank you for your presence in worship and song and we thank you for your continued presence as we worship through the scriptures. And Lord, we ask for the Holy Spirit to teach us, to open our minds and hearts, and to transform us through your mighty words. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So today we're going to look at chapter 5, 1 to 16, and we're going to look at the fear of the Lord and miracles. And yes, it's a story about Ananias and Sapphira, and then at the end of this section, it's about signs and wonders. But really, we're going to be dwelling with the idea of the fear of the Lord and miracles that flow out of that. So last time, we looked at chapter 4, if you can remember, a few weeks back. And we looked at the end of chapter 4. Maybe you can look at it in your Bible there. You can see that Acts chapter 4 ended with a beautiful picture of Christian community and generous giving. I introduced that character, Barnabas, the son of encouragement, and he was lifted up at the end of chapter 4 as an example of someone who was freely giving what he owned. Not under compulsion, but he chose to sell a field piece of property that he owned to lay the proceeds at the apostles' feet so that the poor could be cared for, so that they could distribute that money and care for members of the church who were struggling. And so what we're going to see here in Acts 5 is a contrast. And you'll notice, look at the first word, and I'm going to read it here in a moment, but what's the first word there in Acts 5? But. So this word signals that there's a contrast happening. We've looked at Barnabas. He was generous. He was giving freely of his own choice. And now we're seeing but. So it is letting us know that we're about to see another example. An example of Ananias and Sapphira that contrasted with Barnabas. So let's read this. Acts 5. And I'm reading from the New Revised Standard Version. 
but a man named Ananias, with the consent of his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property with his wife's knowledge. And he kept back some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Ananias, Peter asked, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, were not the proceeds at your disposal? How is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You did not lie to us, but to God. Now when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard of it. The young men came and wrapped up his body, then carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter said to her, tell me whether you and your husband sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, yes, that was the price. Then Peter said to her, how is it? that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test. Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately, she fell down at his feet and died. When the young men came in, they found her dead, so they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear seized the whole church and all who heard of these things. Now many signs and wonders were done among the people through the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared to join them, but the people held them in high esteem. Yet more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, great numbers of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats in order that Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he came by. A great number of people who also gather from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all cured. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. That's a whopper, isn't it? Some of you may be encountering this text for the first time and you're immediately asking lots of questions and saying, wow, I don't think I've ever heard a message on that. So you can be praying for my soul right now. Pray for yourself as we delve into this because here at All Saints, we work through books, we work through chapters, we don't skirt around things, we plow right through it and we trust that the Lord will speak to us oftentimes in surprising ways in a text like this. And friends, this is the word of God. And so there is something for us in this. We saw in the previous chapter that Satan was up to no good, that he brought his first attack to the church, and he tried persecution. He said, I'm going to try to stop this Jesus movement by confronting the apostles, and telling them no more speaking in the name of Jesus. 
So he's attacking from the outside. How did that go, church? Did not go well at all. It actually spread the fire more. So we see Satan here in the next chapter trying not an attack from the outside, but something from the inside. He's going to try to bring a cancer, something poisonous within this community, and he's going to fail again. And so we see here in verses 1 through 2, Ananias and Sapphira, this part about deceit and death. This couple obviously had a good measure of wealth. Look at verses 1 and 2. They decided to sell some property and give the proceeds to the apostles so that they could care for Christians in need. That's a good thing, right? A voluntary act. None of this was obligatory. They freely chose to do this. And what's interesting is some folks think that this story parallels an Old Testament story. There's a story in Judges 7, a story of a man named Achan who did this very same thing. The people of God in the book of Joshua were moving forward. God's purposes were advancing just like it's happening here in Acts 5. And there was an interruption. Achan, in that story, kept back some of the items that he was not supposed to hold on to. They were devoted to the Lord and to the temple, and he kept them back. And so the exact word is being used here. Ananias and Sapphira kept back some of the money. We're going to dig into this and see that there are many facets to their sin. There's lying, but perhaps there's a secret love of money that has taken root in their hearts. 1 Timothy 6, 10 talks about that. So Satan's work, verses 3 and following, with what seems to be supernatural discernment. How in the world did Peter know this? Does the text say, church? Peter asks the question at verse 3, right? Doesn't explain how he knew this, so it suggests that there was something happening. The Lord was speaking to him and giving him spiritual discernment like Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 12, 10. He sees through the situation right to Ananias' heart. Think about this for a moment, okay? In a modern context, these are probably some of the community's key donors, key people in the church, big givers. Peter could have taken a different approach, couldn't he? Put yourself in that situation. Maybe he could have said, hey, Ananias, we know you're a big giver here. We rely on folks like you and your wife to keep things going. I don't want to rock the boat, but can we talk about this situation a little bit? Or he could have chickened out. I'm not messing with them. Things are going well. The poor are being cared for. The community is advancing. That's not what Peter did. He confronted this head on, didn't he? Verses 3 and 4 explain this. Look what he says. Verses 3 and 4. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of the proceeds of the land? 
these are my own words, but paraphrasing, was, was not the land your own before you sold it? And after you sold it, you could have done anything with that money. Why did you allow your heart to do this, Ananias? You didn't just lie to us. You've lied to God. So, friends, this is in the book for a reason. It is a story, a model for all time for the church to search our hearts. And what is it about? It's about money. And so we can look around. Many of us can see all kinds of examples of how money should not be dealt with. Amen? Turn on the TV. Heck, I don't even know what's going on with Christian TV and some of the televangelists, but it's everywhere. The mismanagement of money, the love of money that's taken root in the church and a story like this rebukes that and says church deal with money in a wise way realize that you're transparent before God not just in finances but in speaking the truth so Peter is showing here that the offense was not just against him and the church but against God David said this in Psalm 51.4. He said, Lord, I've sinned against you and you alone. And you're blameless when you bring your discipline against me. So I know this is intense here, right? But as we peel the layers back and look at it, it's going to make more sense. And the word of the Lord is there for us. This was a lie, an act of pretense. They were pretending, weren't they? They were putting on a show. Again, the text only tells us so much, but they were putting on some kind of mask to try to appear to be like Barnabas, probably to get some affirmation, some pats on the back. You're so generous. You're so spiritual. And they were faking it. There's a word for this, hypocrisy. We're going to look at this further But friends, this is a text that causes all of us to search our hearts. Do we have any masks on? Do we need to come clean with God? Are we telling the truth to the Lord who sees it all anyway to one another? Look at verses 5 and 6. Pretty intense, isn't it? As Peter speaks and confronts this. When Ananias hears the words, look at verse 5a, what happens? He heard the words, he fell down. It's literally, he breathed his last, and he died. We're going to see this in other places in the book of Acts. In chapter 12, Herod is speaking, this great Roman leader, and the people are saying, it's the voice of a god. And Herod in that moment is just kind of relishing and drinking in the praise, and he also drops dead. So this is not the only occasion here. He is actually struck by an angel of the Lord and dies. So look at verse 5, the second part there. What happens to those who hear this story? Two words. What is it? Great fear. It's the first time it's mentioned. It will be mentioned again in 5.11. Those who hear this story, there's holy fear that's struck in their hearts. Some young men come and wrap up his body and bury him. 
This was a Jewish custom, right? You had to put someone in their tomb quickly so they're following the law. Am I alone here in thinking that this seems a little severe? Anyone else feeling that a little bit? This is pretty severe. This is, doesn't seem nice according to our 2022 standards, but we are lingering with it. We're looking at it. We're letting it make us feel uncomfortable, right? Am I the only one who feels a little uncomfortable with a text like this? I hope as you're reading it alone or maybe with someone else or in a group, you come to this and you go, wow, this makes me uncomfortable. It sounds extreme. Jack Deere, some of you have read Jack Deere's works. He was a professor who didn't believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and he moved from being a cessationist. The gifts of the Spirit have ceased to being fully convinced that the gifts continue. Listen to what Jack Deere says about this. Wallace reminded me of this this week. Jack says, if you want the building to shake when you pray, then you have to be willing to die when you lie. That's a Jack Deere-ism there. He always has a way of bringing a scalpel through what he says. And his point is, if you remember in chapter 4, they're like, Lord, reach out your hand. Perform signs and wonders. And the building shakes. And so Jack is saying, if you want the power and the presence, then the Lord's going to bring deep integrity to the church. And we've got to let the searchlight come. And we've got to let the Lord's discipline begin with the house of the Lord. And we've got to become repentant and faithful and trustworthy people. Amen? You know I'm committed to walking through things like this because it's a word of God. And we don't bend and we don't skirt around it. And I've been thinking all week, wow, this is awesome church growth material, isn't it? I mean, can you see the manual? You know, 2022 church planting, Ananias and Sapphira, start there. Do you want to grow your church? Then spend time in Acts 5. It's the opposite of what modern people think, isn't it? I mean, we do not think we've got to grow the church and make people comfortable and bring them in. And put them at ease. And let's not say anything that would make them feel uncomfortable. Is that what Acts 5 is doing? Is that the model that we see in the New Testament? Open the doors. Prioritize everything so that, you know, on people outside the church, the unchurched can come in and not be offended. Friends, that is not the example that we have in the book of Acts. The book of Acts is the only inspired church history that we have, and it's the only inspired model of the church in action for 28 chapters, and this is right there at the beginning of the story. So I think that we need to really linger with this and say, Lord, what is it? We don't want to be scared, because we'll see in a minute the fear of the Lord is not being scared. There's something rich and biblical and corrective and deep in this. So this sounds extreme, doesn't it? But it also reminds us that Luke, the historian here, who's put together this story for all time, he's being honest, isn't he? Can you see Luke putting together this story? And he goes, ah, 
this is an early chapter. Is there a way that we can kind of set this aside? Or, hey, Paul, why don't you deal with this? I'm going to excise it from the story. He puts it right there at the beginning of the narrative of the growth of the church. So I think that it bolsters his reliability. Do you? This is not something that you would want to tell if you're out to make your church, your community, the new people of God look real shiny. He's saying it's messy. Along with the beauty, there's blemishes. It's a very human church from the beginning. Another thing is I look at this and I go, this is severe. A second thing is that this passage right here sets the course for all time. What do I mean by that? I mean that God is saying right here, God hates hypocrisy. God loathes lying. God despises deceit. God wants a pure, holy people with whom he can share his presence and his power and his miracles and his resources. Another thing that this honest, startling text says is that God's ways are higher than our ways. Is that right? Again, I've already voiced it. We might look at something like this and think, oh, Lord, I think my ideas, our ideas of church growth and expansion and kingdom ways are better than your ways. And a text like this says, no, God's ways are higher. And as a side note, this is the God who not only leads the church, but directs the universe. And so when you and I think, I could do it better. My ways are better. My ideas for church growth and making unchurched people, it's so much wiser. Friends, this is the God of the church who put this text here. This is a message for the church to lean into for all time. The Lord wants us to be holy. And friends, the good news is he provides all that we need to walk in holiness and honesty and purity. Amen? That's the gospel. God announces it, God requires it, and then God performs it in us. So look what happens at verse 7. Are you with me on this? Hope you're a little bit sweaty, a little bit uncomfortable. I certainly am. But this is the New Testament model that speaks to us about the kind of church that Jesus was building then and the kind of church that he wants to build now. Verses 7 through 10. Sapphira comes in. After three hours, we don't know. We can't ask questions that aren't answered in the text. How did she not know? Friends, the text doesn't say. We just don't know. But again, in 7 through 10, Peter is discerning the situation and he is sensing that Sapphira has been part of the scheme from the beginning. And he gives her the opportunity, doesn't he, in verses 7 through 10, to confess and to come clean. And he asked her, look at verse 8. Tell me whether you and your husband sold the land for such and such a price. Second part of verse 8 there, she says, yes, that was the price. Then look at what Peter says. How is it that you have agreed 
to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test. Look, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door, and they're about to carry you out. So we get this twice. Ananias first, and now Sapphira falls down and dies. So among numerous things that this passage is saying to us, it is saying, be like Barnabas. Be generous. Be honest. Don't seek the praise and affirmation of other people. Give secretly, give privately, give honestly. Don't be like Ananias and Sapphira, who thought that they could deceive the church leaders and deceive one another, deceive God. So I think this text is encouraging us to learn from this, to grow in humility, honesty, generosity, but the fear of the Lord. Those are not words that we hear much about these days. Look at verse 11. We saw this in verse 5. Look at verse 11. Those two words again. Let's say it. Great fear. Great fear. Seize the whole church. So it's seize the people outside the church, what I would call tire kickers, people who are coming around and kicking the tires but not sure that they want to get into the car of the church. And those folks are saying, I'm not getting near that. These people are serious. They are all in. There's a call to holiness, and I'm just kind of half-hearted. I'm just inquiring a little bit. I'm a tire kicker. And so great fear seizes those people, but look at verse 11. Great fear seizes the whole church. This is here. It's a model of doing church in 2022. We want great fear among us. I know you're thinking, what in the world does that mean? But let me just remind you, this has been the story as it was through the history of Jesus in the book of Acts. You know, and we, I mean, in the book of Luke, we saw that Luke and Acts are one part, one scroll. And from the beginning of the story of Jesus, the fear of the Lord was part of the narrative. The fear of the Lord laid hold of John the Baptist's dad in Luke 1. Fear gripped the shepherds. The fear of the Lord washed over the shepherds when the angel of the Lord appeared to them. Friends, it's part of the gospel. Chapter 7 of Luke, Jesus raises a widow's son from the dead. And what happened to the people that were observing? Great fear seized them. They were like, who is this? He can forgive sins and raise the dead. I could go on and on. Chapter 8 of Luke, Jesus encounters the demoniac that had a legion of demons in him. Several thousand demons and Jesus drove them out and presented that young man to the people and great fear seized them and they basically said, get out of town. (laughs) We've never seen anything like this. We're going to see through the whole book of Acts, the fear of the Lord was part of their worship and their existence. Acts 2.43, Acts 4.36, Acts 9.31. The fear of the Lord pervades the whole story of Jesus 
and the whole story of the church. So I want to ask you today, where's the fear of the Lord in the church today? Where's the fear of the Lord in your life? Do you have the fear of the Lord? Young people, do you have the fear of the Lord resting on you? Do you take God lightly? Where is the fear of the Lord in the contemporary church? This biblical model shows us that God's fiery presence is among his people. They're they're constantly amazed. There's ongoing amazement and healthy fear among them as God is expanding his kingdom. What do we mean by the fear of the Lord? Some of you wonder what I'm intending by that when I say it. Just want to look at a few places here. The fear of the Lord. It does not mean the way that you felt when your dad was mean. I'm scared of him. He's coming home, and I hate him, and he hates me, and I'm scared of him. That is not it. We have to put those images out of our mind. The fear of the Lord, Scripture says, Psalm 19.9, is clean and pure, and it endures forever. 1 John 4, I think it's at 18, says that God's perfect love drives out what? Fear. The perfect love of the Father drives out fear. So we're seeing here there's two different kinds of fear. There's the fear of man and woman, fear of the material world, and then there's the fear of the Lord, which is clean and pure. Listen to these scriptures. Deuteronomy 10 says that the fear of the Lord is the essence of God's word. Listen to this. So now Israel... What does the Lord your God require of you? Only to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and soul, and to keep his commandments. So friends, the fear of the Lord is good. It is biblical. It's even couched there with love. So fearing the Lord and loving the Lord coexist. Another verse that's well known, Proverbs 1, 7, all the way through the book of Proverbs. What is it that leads to wisdom and knowledge? It's the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. So if you want knowledge and you want wisdom, then you've got to grow in the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 14, 27 And then we'll move on after this. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life so that one may avoid the snares of death. Friends, the fear of the Lord is wonderful. Right there, the text says it gives life. Do you want the fear of the Lord in your life? Do you want the fountain of God's goodness and presence and mercy flowing in your life so that you can avoid the snares that the enemy puts there? You need the fear of the Lord resting on you. You pray for the fear of the Lord. A great text is Isaiah 11. Isaiah saw the Messiah coming and he said he's going to have seven spirits, seven workings of the Holy Spirit in his life. And one of them is the spirit of the fear of the Lord that will rest on him. So the text is saying here, and we spent most of the time looking at verses 1 through 11, The fear of the Lord seems to be a grace 
that God brings before entrusting miracle-working power to his church. Do you see it? What happens at verse 12? We've seen this breathtaking story for 11 verses, right? People drop dead because they lied to God. They lied to the Holy Spirit, who is God. They lied to the leaders. They lied to the church. They lied to themselves. The fear of the Lord is released in the church. At verse 12, now many signs and wonders were done among the people through the apostles. So there's something that the Lord is showing us through this text. Would you agree? So we want the fear of the Lord that is clean and wonderful and antithetical to our mean parents or whoever it is. The mean sibling that you fear, the mean boss that you've had. This is different. This is the fear of the Lord. Look at what the text says. These signs and wonders... These are miracles that point to Christ. They verify the gospel. They're being done through the apostles. What does that mean? It means that God is the one who does the signs and wonders. They're human agents. We saw this in Acts 2.22 that God worked miracles through Jesus. And now we see in Acts 2.43 and here... God is working miracles through his followers as they follow the example of Jesus. So friends, this means that you and I get to be agents of miracles and signs and wonders. That God wants to work miracles through you and me. To work signs and wonders through us, his church. Is that true? I cannot find a text in the New Testament, or the Old Testament for that matter, that says God did this in the first century and because you have the Bible now, he no longer authenticates the gospel message with signs and wonders. I can't find it. I can't find it. The people that hold up 1 Corinthians 13 and say that all of these various gifts will be displayed until the perfect comes, that's not the Bible. The perfect coming is the second coming of Christ. Friends, there's not a text in the New Testament that says God stopped this stuff. We are the conduits, the agents, the people through whom God does miracles and signs and wonders. Again, this makes me incredibly uncomfortable. I'm like, are you kidding me? You want to do this stuff through me? Can you trust me? Can you trust these people? Some of you are probably more trustworthy than I am or than one another, but I got some stuff that God needs to work on. That's why I want the fear of the Lord to take root in my heart and to drive out sin and unhealthy fear. I want the fear of the Lord. Do you? Do you want the fear of the Lord operating in your life? A fountain of life. So let's end with this. Look at verses 14 through 16, we see that some wouldn't dare to join them because of the presence of the consuming fire and the requirements on the people of God to actually be honest, to do things that are against the grain of the culture. So it's like some folks, the tire kickers are running the other direction and then others 
are joining the church at verse 14. And then 15 and 16 talks about these stunning miracles that are happening in the streets. Peter's shadow is healing. That seems maybe a little bit odd, but if you look at the Gospels, power flowed from Jesus and from his garments. We'll see later in Acts that the Apostle Paul actually prays over garments and sends them to places and people are healed through his clothing. clothing. Friends, this is strange stuff, but it's the word of God. Do you believe it? I certainly do. I'm choosing to believe these things. And just when I thought, man, this, Lord, I don't know if there's any of this kind of shadow thing happening now. Again, it's not superstitious at all. It's because Peter had been in the glory cloud. He was filled with the presence of the Holy Spirit. The glory of God was on him and in him to such an extent that he could walk by people and they were healed. Is that what the text says? There's no magical thing about his shadow. It's just because he had been in the presence of Jesus, he was filled with the mighty power of the Holy Spirit. People got healed. Would you like to see some of that? Even as I ask that, I'm just stunned. There's an account. Smith Wigglesworth, this British charismatic healer in the early 1900s, he went to Sri Lanka and this happened. So there's eyewitness accounts where the people were in the streets and he's walking through and his shadow is passing over people and they were instantly healed and cured. So friends, it happened in the first century and it continues to happen when the Lord sees fit. I just want to stretch your minds, stretch your expectations a little bit. God does amazing things whenever he wants to. To exalt his son, to confirm the gospel, to expand his church, and to bring the fear of the Lord. Amen? So why don't we stand? I love you. I care for you. Enough for us to sit with a passage like this. And so I encourage you this week, maybe go back and look at this and say, Brock was making these comments. Is this really here? I'm going to read it again. I might get my study Bible out. Maybe a little commentary. Friends, it's there. Chapters 1 through 16. Next week, we're going to look at 5, 17 to 42 through the end of the chapter. And we're going to see that these unstoppable Christians are thrown in prison yet again. And they're filled with joy. They have tapped into something that the Lord wants us to tap into. They are filled with joy when they face persecution. So Jesus... Whatever you want to deposit in us through these verses here, we ask for it. We ask for the fear of the Lord to rest on us here at All Saints. And we do, we say, Father, you are worthy of being treated with awe and respect. You're mighty, you're holy, you're kind, you're good, but we do fear you. And we pray that we would grow in Christ-likeness in the coming days. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen. So I'm going to ask for the ministry team to come forward. After reading a passage like this, I think, church, that we should certainly make space to pray with faith. James 5 commands the church for all time.
commands the elders, but the rest of the church to lay hands on the sick and to expect God to heal for people to recover. And so I'm going to ask the ministry team to come up. And we want to be a church that every time we're together, we are praying for breakthrough, but we're praying for the sick. If you're sick in your body, we believe that the name of Jesus brings healing and restoration. So if you're sick in your body for some reason, you want prayer, come forward. You can get prayer for breakthrough in other areas.